0: Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church, and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. It's an absolute joy to be here this morning. You know, these gatherings, and they can take different forms, but uh, for me, they are in many ways the true measure Uh, and rhythm of a local church. Um, It's been fascinating for me ministering for the 14 years in South Africa. Well, I actually came to faith as a university student at the age of 18, left South Africa when I was 38, and um, have lived in L.A. for the last 14, 18 years. But it is interesting for me as I have the opportunity of the two churches we've led and the churches that we minister into now from small, from 20 to 6,000. The reality is this. The well-being of the church is most easily measured, the barometer of a healthy church by this, the gathering of the men. I love America. I'm a very proud American. I know I don't sound like it, but I travel on an American passport. My son is American-born. And I'm incredibly grateful to God for that part of my story. But I want to say this with tenderness. America is becoming more and more a matriarchal society. As more and more homes are without fathers, more and more mothers are traveling without husbands, more and more kids are being raised without dads, What happens is that the society becomes more and more matriarchal. In other words, in the absence of men, women have to step into a dual role. They have to be both father and mother. And so when we go into churches, especially in the English-speaking world, for me, the true barometer, the true finger on the pulse of a church, of course it can be in your elder meetings, of course it can be in Sunday gatherings, but for me, the truer measure, the more lasting measure, is this. The word on the ground is if a mother comes to faith, a mother comes to faith. When a father comes to faith, the family comes to faith. And so, this is an incredible honor for me to be here with you this morning. Um, I was in a prayer meeting a few months ago, I wasn't uh, leading it, but uh, during the time, I don't know how many of you are used to kind of quite open-ended, open prayer times, it's not very structured, very liturgically specific, and uh, I looked across the room, and there was quite a pretty blonde who was standing off to the side, and I felt the Spirit of God say, go across and pray for her, so because obviously I'm a red-blooded male, I knew that this would not be a good thing to do alone. So I took uh, Meryl with me, took some people with me, and I walked across and said, Hi, my name is Chris. She said, I know. And she introduced herself to me. I said, Do you mind if I pray for you? She said, No, absolutely not. I never ask people what to pray for because they rarely know what prayer they need. So as I come across and put my hand very gently on her shoulder, a story runs through my mind. This is the story. I have two girls. They're both married now. One has been married about uh, eight, no, no, 10 years. The other has just got married. And when they were small, one of the things I loved about being a dad of daughters is the affection exchanged between a dad and a daughter. Somehow I knew, this wasn't something I read in a book, but somehow I realized that her sexuality, my daughter's sexuality, was developed by her relationship with me. Her mother would teach them feminine ways. I mean, let's be honest, How, what on earth do I know about periods? I mean, I'm probably not going to teach them anything when it comes to those things. But what I am going to teach them is their sexuality. And so, um, I, uh, with each one of them at different times, I'd put their little feet on my feet, and I would um, dance with them, put my arms around them, and they would cling on tightly to my legs, and invariably, they would then begin to initiate, Daddy, Daddy, can we dance? And, and uh, they'd put their arms around me, and I would go, na, 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 and They'd hold on, oh, Daddy, this is so wonderful, so wonderful. And as I put my hands on this girl's shoulder, I say to her, I describe this, just very briefly in her ear. And as I look at her, she just tears streaming down her face. I said, you never had a father who danced with you, did you? And her head shook from side to side. I said, I'm going to ask you to do something. Would you mind putting your hands over your chest? Always maintain the integrity and dignity of the womanhood. And she did. And I said, do you mind putting your toes just on the edge of my shoes, which she did. And I put my arms around her. And I just danced, just quietly, stationary. She wept and she wept and she wept. About four weeks later, my son, who's a teenager, said to me, Dad, a bunch of us are going to Long Beach. There's a cool new pancake place. Is it okay if we go? I said, of course. Car pulls up to pick him up. And I said, look, I want to meet the driver. You know, all the good stuff. And uh, the, the window goes down, and there's the same girl. And she looks through the window, and she looks at me. And she says, I don't know if you, if you remember me. I said, I most certainly do. She said, I would never had a father dance with me before, and I've always wanted a father to do that and she said something broke over me that night because a father took time to dance with me never underscore never undervalue the necessity and the priority of men getting together it's not about beer it's not about burgers it's not about any other bee you can think of it's about us being empowered to be the men that this community desperately needs Sir, your story is important. Please don't let the enemy ever lie to you and for you to think that somehow your story is less important than Paul's or Tony's or someone else's. Your story is important. It says in the book of Revelation that they overcame him, the enemy, Satan. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. That's the gospel. And they overcame him with their own story. Our story is worth it telling our story is worth telling the afrikaner and i'm an afrikaner one of the things i loved and i don't want to get distracted because i actually have some things i think will be helpful but i remember growing up or going to visit my grandpa on the farm and he would early in the morning there would be I don't, it may be true here too but it was so far back in the day that there wasn't electricity There'd be a big cold stove and my grandma would get up early and make rusks and put them in the oven. And I remember waking up as a kid with percolated coffee, coffee, beans in a little pouch, boiling in water on the stove. And the longer the day went, the stronger the coffee came. But I remember sitting on my grandpa's bed and him telling me stories all the way back from when he was born, from the ox wagon days, from the days that the Brits fought the the, the Afrikaners in the Boer War and his sisters dying in concentration camps. And I remember sitting in there because our story counts. Our story matters. You say, but Chris, my story is a story of tumbling and falling and, and stumbling and losing faith and gathering faith. Your story is worth telling. I want you to grab your Bibles if you have them or your phones or whatever you may use to use read the scripture and I want to read to you a passage of scripture from Genesis. Genesis is the first book in the Bible for those of you a little less acquainted with it and um, from verse 13, uh, chapter 39 we'll pick up in the first verse. while you find it, uh, David the king is about to be going to uh, be with His heavenly father. And he turns to his son who's going to take on the kingly assignment. And he says a very interesting thing to him. He says, son, he says, show yourself a man. It's a very interesting phrase. It's one worth a conversation. What did he mean when he said, show yourself or prove yourself a man? It's an assignment every man in this room should should own and engage in. What What does it mean to be a Bible guy? But this... Is the story of Joseph. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the garden Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man this is a story about a businessman this is not a man in, in ministry or a church planter or an elder or some of the more traditional office, offices that we associate with ministry this is a story of a boy who came from a wealthy rancher home his dad was wealthy but we find we're picking up the story where he is a servant in a military home the man Potiphar is the captain of the guard. He oversees the defense of Pharaoh. It's in the inner sanctum, the inner belly of Egyptian society. He's in a foreign culture. He's in a foreign home. He's in a foreign way of doing things. He's by himself. He's disconnected from his ethnicity. He's disconnected from that which is culturally near and simple for him. He finds himself completely out of his depth. We'll carry on reading. His master saw, verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him, that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer over his house. In other words, he became the administrator over this very wealthy dude's uh, business affairs and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time he had made him overseer at his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. Please, gentlemen, without getting distracted, when you and I step into our God's story, blessing follows. A quick story. There's a man, a South African man, as it would turn out, who leads a church in Qatar. Rob Werter went to Qatar as a businessman. He wasn't walking with the Lord because he was an Afrikaner, South African. There was enough of a little bit of spirituality in there, but no authentic journey. The church is planted in Qatar by the harbour master, Dave Wallen dave grows the church 27 cultures five different language groups it's an exciting exhilarating church the government gets wind of it because it's an illegal church it's kind of an underground church so they pull dave's visa rob in the meanwhile comes to faith but he's a businessman in qatar working for a muslim boss he goes to the muslim boss tells him he thinks the best way is to speak honestly he goes to the boss and he says actually I want you to know I've rediscovered my Christian faith I'm a leader in this community and I am asking you sir to let me go let me go and lead and pastor these people he said uh, the boss says no I won't let you go Rob says why he says because you are too valuable for me I don't know your God, I don't know your faith, but this I know, since you've joined the company, we have experienced unprecedented blessing and prosperity and growth, I won't let you go. They sit at the desk, they negotiate, eventually the negotiated conclusion is this, you give me one day a week, says his Muslim boss, and I will give you a full salary, plus a car, plus vacation, plus expenses. So what he earned with a full salary, working a full month, he now earned working one day a week with all the perks and privileges. Because a Muslim man saw that it's too valuable to have a Christian in the office than to let this Christian walk out the door. That's his Joseph story. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance and after a time his master's wife cast her eye on Joseph and said lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife behold because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself. Because you are his wife, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, perpetual drip feeding, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house. She caught him by his garment and said, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out the house, she called to the men of the household and said, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I had lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and he fled and got out of the house. And she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And he said to her the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you've brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. As soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and he fled out the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. He didn't process He responded out of anger, and Joseph's master took him and put him into prison. The place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph. Father, I just ask, in these few minutes, that we will gather almost like um, kind of a war party, that we would gather around the throne of grace, and that you, the commander of the army of God, would give us clear assignments. Father, for those of us who have been reluctant and reserved and been overly aware of our weaknesses, our faults and failings, may we gather ourselves today and be freshly assigned to your greater purposes. For those of us who have been courageous and strong and risk-taking, may we be further emboldened to the new adventures that you place before us. But this we ask of you, let none leave here today untouched, unchanged by the might and power and wonder of your great gospel. In Jesus name amen all right gentlemen I I really will try not to be long thank you for being here so early in the morning and I will um, I try to wake up I'm an early riser I've been awake since 4 praying for this morning uh, but that doesn't mean because my eyes are open that my mind is sharp so we will try and make sense of it all this is an interesting passage of scripture and here's my thesis one of the things that differs Christianity from all other world religions From Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, secularism, is the fact that God has for every one of us a unique assignment, a mission, a purpose if you want. In none of the other world religions is there that sense of a personal God investing in every individual a specific assignment. So to each one of us, there is a unique mission. You have a story. You are on this planet. When that story is complete, gentlemen, then you can be with the Father. Not until then. God did not create us to be morally good. God did not say in Genesis chapter 1, Now what I want you to do is I want you to be good, I want you to be perfect, and I want you to be whole. He said, I want you to increase, I want you to multiply, and I want you to fill the earth. God gave man a unique and personal assignment. And the church has been distracted from that great gospel idea and been preoccupied with moralizing. And so many of you are sitting in this room limping by the fact that you have shadows in your story where you are not morally good, where you are not morally sound, where you feel like God scowled over your decisions and over your behavior. But the first point of conversation between man and God is not morality, but mission. Can I say that again? The first conversation between God and man is not morality, how good have you been, but mission, where have you been? Even when Satan came um, uh, with, with Job, he said, Satan, where have you been? What's been your mission? Not, Satan, you've been a bad boy, you were a naughty angel. He said, where have you been? And because the enemy wants to make morality the big story, he gets our head down, our, 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 our chins are in our chest, beaten up because somehow he gets us to think, my inability to be good is God's greatest preoccupation. And when I'm not good, God scowls at me. This text is remarkable because we see in Joseph three surrogates three counterfeits to mission in the absence of a clear sense of this is why I am on this planet the enemy comes and he offers me three counterfeits and he gets me to look into these three areas I'll give them to you quickly and then I'll briefly explain them and we will be done the first is possessions the second is pleasure and I use alliteration so I can remember it. And the third is profile. They are all surrogates that create the alternative to the authentic, and the authentic is divine mission. Let's have a look quickly. The first is possessions. I live in Southern California, and uh, it's not difficult to go in there. You don't have to have this kind of super spiritual prophetic radar to go around to realize that everyone is preoccupied with gaining possessions. We say insatiable materialism. And so everyone is in ridiculous debt. I don't know Ozzy well enough, so forgive me if my, if my illustrations are more American than Australian. I remember sitting for the first time with a man, when we, just after we got there, we took over the church. Great guy, had his own business, he was an electrician and I was sitting having a meal with Meryl and I, with him and his wife, and in conversation it came out that he had twenty to $30,000 personal debt. That's not his company. That's not what he had to put into his company to get it going. It was simply consumer debt, money he'd used to buy stuff. And I was honestly taken aback. by Here is a man who's walked with Jesus for some time, And he was incapable of tithing. He was incapable of giving with any extravagance to great kingdom adventures because of his own personal consumer debt. What did the enemy throw at Joseph in this story? He said, and I think this was God, he got Joseph to work and make another man rich. In fact, this man could go and sit on the Nile and go fishing with his mates because he knew Joseph was bringing in the beans. He knew that Joseph was taking care of business. And I wonder, I suspect, as I was kind of pontificating over the thinking, musing, mulling over this, uh, actually for the last few months, just the story of Joseph, how few of us find great satisfaction in making someone else rich. But when you know it's not your grand mission, it's not your great assignment to be rich, it's not a problem at all. But in the absence of a clear mission, it becomes problematic because I want to be rich, I want to buy my kids stuff, I want to look good, I want to drive the fancy car, I want the fancy house. But the problem is, dear friends, if that is not your mission, it will never taste good. When the economic downturn hit us in 2006 2007, how many businessmen jumped off buildings, blew their brains out, and I say it with a broken heart. Because their identity was their possessions. And when you take that away, I have nothing. I am empty. It's a surrogate, gentlemen. Joseph ultimately became rich, Abraham ultimately became rich. But it wasn't their grand assignment to be rich. Richness was the vehicle for their mission. I'm not a preacher that believes God wants us poor necessarily. It's almost not a conversation. What every one of us have to do is to find that place of God, what is my mission? My brother-in-law, John Higgs, great man, amazing man. His father and mother, his father was um, head prefect. Natal school 's rugby, Natal school 's cricket, the prototype alpha male. his mother, gorgeous woman I 'm told, back in the day, also head prefect of a private school, come from two wealthy families, and basically they butchered their lives. The old man ended up living with a mistress, never divorced, divorced the mother because they were Catholics. Four kids. John was the younger, the other three are older. Lives, I don't know if I can say it here, forgive me if it's inappropriate, but in America we can. Lives are screwed up. I chatted with John. This old man ended up dying of alcoholism. His father lost the family wealth. There are streets named after the family that almost don't exist anymore because possessions became everything. And I asked John one day, he ran, uh, he, he was the top sprinter at school, won the art prize, rugby, the whole nine. I said, John, did your dad ever speak to you about your mission? And his eyes filled up. He said, my dad never, ever spoke to me about my future. In America, the conversation is, which university are you going to? Not are you going to university, it's which one are you going to? And so the conversations are never around mission. It's around university. It's around kind of job. It's around the kind of money you want. It's the kind of house you want. It's which city do you want to live in. And gentlemen, those never satisfy. The conversation we have with our kids are conversations of mission, not of life standing. Jesus said this when he prayed. I hope it's not too intense. I'm desperately trying to think of a joke, but I can't think of one. So forgive me. But these are deep things to me because I'm now a father, I'm a grandfather, I have four grandkids and I travel around the world and fatherlessness is in my face everywhere I go. So forgive my passion, my intensity, my seriousness, but it is a fairly sober conversation. Jesus said this when he prayed. He said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me but not my will, but yours be done. He surrendered to mission no matter how awkward, painful, and traumatic the situation was. When you and I don't have mission, we struggle to find meaning in hard times. A boxer, saying we use that understands hard times because the mission is clear in his mind. I ran marath- marathons and ultra marathons and the pain of waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning to go and run 20Ks, 30Ks was meaningful because of the mission ultimately that I saw running Durban to, to Peter Maritzburg at 50 miler, 90 something Ks. See mission may- gives meaning to hardship. But when we don't have mission, we're simply trying to live out meaning through possessions and possessions will never satisfy. Buy that Ferrari, it will be like sand in your mouth. Get that bigger house, it will be sand in your mouth. And you will wonder why with anger I have a dear friend whose kids don't speak to him because his life was to give his kids everything he did not have. And he bought them new cars and he sent them to the best universities and now his kids don't speak to him. And he is as angry as the day. And I said, Rich, you never gave your kids mission. You gave your kids possessions. But possessions are tasteless without mission. Secondly, pleasure. This is a remarkable surrogate. It deeply captivates the heart and the soul. This story, now come on, let's just be men and be honest enough here for a moment. Now, forgive me if I over describe the situation, but here is a probably about 19 year old young guy right now. He is seriously good looking. The Bible takes time to tell us. He's probably pretty lean. He's probably pretty ripped. He's probably because of Egypt walking out with minimal clothing in keeping with his position as a servant. She is gorgeous. At least she's wealthy. At least she can go and have all the treatments. Every day she is, the the, the fragrance of all of her spices linger as she walks past. I'm sure he stops for a moment, at least inwardly, as she walks past. He is 19 years old. He has not been with a woman. He is a slave and a servant. And this woman comes rather flirtatious. She came to him over and over and over again like a dripping tap. And I'm sure there must have been more than a moment when he clenched his teeth. And he said, I do not know how long I can still resist this for. We are led to believe a lie that if I can just have more pleasure, my life will have meaning. So I guts out Monday through Friday. I'll work, I'll get my, the diesel under, out from under my fingernails, but if I can just get to the game on Friday, or I can just flirt with the internet just a little bit, if I can just open up and just, just push the lines a little bit, somehow the tantalized, tantalizing taste of sexuality will appease me. I had a man come and see me, an artist. And he said to me, Chris, I have to tell you a story. I said, sure. He said, I am a very visual man because that's my work. I paint, and he said, I, um, we had to paint nudes, and so it was a legitimate way to look on a naked woman, naked man, but it was not enough, so I excused it in my mind, and justified it in my mind, because I'm an artist, and I've got to paint the human form, I'll just go online, and I will just look at a naked form, because it will help me, I'll be a better artist, but it wasn't enough. So I thought what I can do is if I just look at a man and a woman together then it will help me and I'll be a better artist and I can better communicate what my art is all about. So then I thought, well, if, if, if I could just get a guy and a girl, then maybe I should just get like threesomes because that will help me be a better artist. He said, but that did not satisfy. And so I started thinking, well, maybe if I just see a man and a man together and a woman and a woman together, that will. And the enemy just rolled out the bait and slowly reeled him in because there was this notion, if I just get a little bit more pleasure, I will find meaning and I will be satisfied. But this is insatiable, gentlemen. Pleasure outside of the context of mission never satisfies. Why would a fan kill a goalkeeper, shoot a goalkeeper in Colombia because they lost the game if it isn't that the pursuance of pleasure was meaningless? Pleasure has its place in mission. But pleasure is never a mission in itself. I know your wrestles. I'm a man. Yes, I'm a preacher, but I'm a man. My head also turns when I see a gorgeous woman, but I've got to decide if it'll turn again. My son is 14. To be honest, I'm really glad that his head turns when a pretty girl walks past and not a pretty boy. Just saying. I'm a dad. I'm just honest. But I've also had to have the conversation of the internet with him. Because it never satisfies. When you and I are captivated by mission, pleasure finds its rightful place. I am a passionate Liverpool supporter. Soccer. The Lord knows who are winners. That's what I'm saying. I'm a passionate. I'm a passionate Laker basketball supporter. I am. I'm a passionate Natal Sharks rugby union supporter. I am. I don't support South African cricket because they're losing right now. (laughs) But if it loses its perspective, gentlemen, is what I'm trying to say. If it loses its perspective because mission isn't the primary driving agency, it becomes meaningless and will not satisfy jesus draws us into a place of enjoyment look just quickly 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 i, I did a series of talks before i left south africa at the universities and schools on sexuality and i knew i couldn't quote the bible because it would be meaningless in this context so i remember at one particular school about a thousand boys they were quite antagonistic towards me before i opened my mouth and i was a lot younger then kind of cool and hipster and so my opening line went something like this. I created the scene tantalizing their interest. Imagine your mate comes to you and says, oh, I've just got this really cool sex thing lined up for this afternoon. And I describe it and I want to be sensitive to the context here, some younger and some older. And the guys were now leaning into, I didn't open the Bible, I didn't, they were now leaning into the story. I said, and as you get home, you open the door and your mate's with your mum. That's fine, isn't it? Sure, you should have seen the guy's heads go, oh, can't put. so what's wrong? Is, it, is there a problem here? Or you go into the prom, you go into your uh, 12th grade dance, and this guy says, oh, I just got really cool condoms, you know, and, and he describes, I've got this chick lined up, it's hot, we've got champagne, everything's lined up, and uh, as he gets into the limo and drives off, your sister gets it. That's fine, isn't it? It's, it's fine, isn't it? Because it's your sister. I mean, hey, your mate's going to get some pleasure. Hey, why not your sister? She can offer him the pleasure. He desperately... and, and you can see the guys are agitated. They are seriously, seriously riled. Why? Because something even in the, in the unsaved heart and soul knows that it's not okay if your buddy wants to go and sleep with your mother. But Jesus, when He hung on the cross turned to his best mate John and he said I entrust my mother to you son your mother mother your son and how remarkable was it that a woman of ill repute of long hair probably extremely gorgeous by the fact that she was wanted by men, took a bottle of perfume worth a year's wage. What is, it, what is a wor- year's wage for you? And she broke it over his feet and she wiped his feet with her hair because she could trust a man who would not use her for his own pleasure-seeking ends because he had a greater mission and a greater call, which included maintaining and letting her rediscover her beauty as a woman. Gave woman the opportunity to see the empty tomb. Gave woman the opportunity to preach the first gospel. Go and tell them he is risen. The surrogates of possessions, the surrogate of pleasure never satisfies. My brother put his hand up at a meeting I was preaching when he was 18. He's five years younger than I was. He walked out of that meeting and went ballistic. For 20 years, got married, had affairs, played rugby for the Natal Sharks, didn't pitch to a game. He went ballistic, dope, alcohol, everything. I was in LA, I got a phone call, he said, but, he said, I've come back to Jesus. He said, I can do nothing about the last 20 years, they are wasted, they are empty, And I'm a broken man, but I'm going to make the next 20 years count. He planted a church. Not that that has to be the response, but it was for him. Got a wonderfully reconciled marriage. His wife is a gift. Jenny is a gift. She stood with him during all the junk. And there's hardly a week that goes by that he doesn't get the phone call. Hendon, I heard you had an affair. Can you help me? See, your story can count. They've just done a story on him in the latest Christian magazine in South Africa. Your story can count, but don't be sucked in. Possessions and pleasure are surrogates. They're not the real thing. Lastly, and I close with this, profile. We all think if I just get promoted, if I just get recognized, if people will just see me, then I've got meaning. Tony will just put me on the stage I can play music with Benno, if I can just give my testimony, if I can just profile, 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 it is as seductive, but it is as surrogate as the other two are. Isn't it amazing, friends? Isn't it amazing that God knew what he had for Joseph, and I'll talk a little bit more about that on Sunday night. But isn't it amazing that he has to find the dark night of the soul where he is forgotten? He becomes, in this text, a servant to prisoners. I mean, it doesn't get lower than that. I don't know if you can think of something lower than that, but it doesn't. Nothing is worse than serving prisoners. And I can only imagine Joseph, this young, good-looking guy, who was falsely accused, who's in prison for something he didn't do, who then becomes the servant to other prisoners, and he's lying on the floor on a mat in a stinky, smelly, Egyptian jail, and he's lying and he's saying, God, you have forgotten me. But there is no sweeter place to be ripped free from the demand of profile than feeling forgotten. When you and I can handle the forgotten moments, gentlemen, I think we are at our best place positioned for the great God assignment. When position and profile and recognition and applause are not the agenda that drives us, we are ready for the great God assignment. Jesus said it this way when he was on the cross Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And every one of us, including me, I'm 55 years old. In January, I was crying out on my bed exactly, God, why have you forgotten me? And we are best positioned for the great God assignment when we've overcome the torment of forgottenness. While we hunger for possessions, pleasure and profile, we are undermining the very mission that God has made available for us. I close with two scriptures. His mercies are new every morning. He chooses to remember our sin no more. Those are two texts that hold me captive. His mercies are new every morning. You say, Chris, I hear you, man. I wrestle with those very things and I can, I can write stories about any one of those you may say to me. It's okay, sir. Like you, I'm a man who falters and stumbles and falls and I'm vulnerable to my own humanness and my propensity to want possessions, to want pleasure. I am a pleasure-seeking man and who wants profile. I wrestle with it, sir, every day just like you do. But His mercies are new every morning. Every morning He empowers us to live a life great on mission, light on possession, great on God assignment, light on pleasure, great gospel adventures, light on profile. And He chooses to remember our sin no more. Like you. I have those nights two o'clock three o'clock in the morning and my eyes are wide open and Say, oh God why did I where well, I hate my humanness my propensity to sin or to want to sin But I'm so comforted by the fact that he chooses to remember my sin no more I nearly fell morally I was 29 years old there about now I was 30, 31 years old. My second daughter just been born. Meryl is a natural mother. Her instinct is to motherhood. And mothering became more important to Meryl than wifing. And I'm an officer. I was in the South African Defence Force. And I was sent off to a captain's course. And uh, while I was away on military assignment, um, this young college girl came into the story. Met her one night at a restaurant. By the grace of God, I never fell, but there's no other reason other than the grace of God. His mercy is on you every morning. But I was startled by my own vulnerability, startled. I came home and told Meryl, told Dudley, told Rob Rufus, who were uh, my kind of accountability world. You know, the amazing thing is, that was many years ago, so it will be 20 some years ago. Merrill has never raised that ever with me. We prayed together, she forgave me, and she never raised it again. Never held it as a gun to my head, never put it as a Democles sword over me. Oh yeah, just when we have hardship again, what are you going to have an affair? Never once. And I found the power, the humble power of forgiveness and forgetfulness. The enemy wants you to remember, gentlemen. He wants you to. And that way He keeps you weak, He keeps you beaten. But there's good news today. The good news is not just the honesty of that matrix to say, Chris, I'm vulnerable to those things too. But the fact is that He chooses to remember our sin no more. When memory comes back to you, remember when, remember when, remember when, that, sir, is not the authorship of God. If you've confessed your sin and you've repented of your sin... The memory is not from heaven, it's from hell. To keep you beaten, to keep you defeated, to keep you backing off saying, no guys, I can't go on my great grand assignment because you don't know what's in my heart. Now this great grand assignment is because of God, not because of you. And He gives us mercies that are you every morning and He chooses to remember our sin no more. I am so relieved, and I am closing, but I just want this to marinate you. I'm so relieved God never brings my sin to my attention, because it's been dealt with. It's part of the grace message that I don't know why. I remember we used to sleep worship in the 70s. I don't know why Jesus loves me. I don't know why He cares. I don't know why he sacrificed his life. Oh, I'm glad, I'm glad he did. And I don't know why, but I'm glad he did. Let's pray together. Your mercies are new every morning. Though our sins were as scarlet, they shall be as white as freshly fallen snow. thank you. According to your character of forgiveness and forgetfulness, you choose to remember our sin no more. And that is amazing. I thank you, Lord, for the, I don't know, hundred and something men who are here today, each with a unique God assignment, each with an extraordinary mission. Today, can we shrink the power of God? of possessions can we reduce the influence of pleasure and can we remove the propensity for recognition and profile and today can you enlarge once again the great global assignments you've put into our lives by your grace and by your kindness and that will bring glory to God because we know we don't deserve it but you are amazing